Lovely Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We recently celebrated the life of Nancy Reagan and the marriage of Nancy and Ronald Reagan upon her passing. And you can listen to the full hours we've done, and we did too, at ouramericannetwork.org. Today we bring you a story of her husband for our This Day in History segment that's brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about the Constitution, our nation's history, the arts, literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you through their hugely popular and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And it features some of the best professors in this country, the kind I didn't have in college, frankly, and I didn't even have in some of the best law schools I'd been to in the country. I attended one of the best. And on this day in history, well, it's St. Patrick's Day, named after the Irish saint, a day that President Ronald Reagan, like many Americans, celebrated heartily. In our local paper, the Oxford Eagle, we bumped into a story about President Reagan's celebration. It was from nationally syndicated columnist Tom Purcell, who graciously recorded it for us. Here's Tom. On St. Patrick's Day, 1988, when President Reagan arrived at Pat Troy's Irish Pub in Alexandria, Virginia. As news got around town, the pub quickly filled the capacity. While Reagan enjoyed a pint of harp and some corned beef and cabbage, Pat Troy was so busy tending to his patrons, he didn't have time to react to his famous customer. He had an energy about him, Troy told me. It made it easy to carry on as though he were just another patron, so that's what I did. Troy took to the stage and led the audience in the wild road. He directed different sections of the audience to compete with each other. You have to clap louder, Mr. President, he shouted, causing the president to laugh out loud. Troy next led the audience in the unicorn song. While he sang the words, the audience mimicked the animals referenced in the song. There were green alligators and long-necked geese, some humpback camels and some chimpanzees, some cats and rats and elephants, but as sure as you're born, the loveliest of all was the unicorn. Reagan turned to watch a group of young women act out the song. His face showed curiosity and delight, as though he'd never seen this song performed before. But that's how he was. At the same time he was the world's most powerful leader, he was a man of youthful innocence who found immense pleasure in the simplest things. Troy then handed the microphone to the president. The raucous crowd became silent. Reagan spoke off the cuff. First of all, a very great thank you to Pat Troy, the owner of this particular place. <laughs> then he talked about his father, an Irishman. My father told me when I was that high that the Irish built the jails in this country and then filled them. <laughs> but I just want you to know, I'm, you know, I'm very leery about ethnic jokes now in my position. <laughs> the only ones I can tell are Irish. Reagan then talked about a visit to Castle Rock where St. Patrick had erected the very first cross in Ireland. And the young Irish guide who was showing me around took me through the cemetery. And he stopped me by one very ancient, large tombstone there. The inscription on the tombstone read, Remember me as you pass by, for as you are, so once was I. 
And as I am, you too will be. So be content to follow me. And that was too much for some Irishmen of more recent vintage who, who, had, who had scratched underneath. To follow you, I am content. I wish I knew which way you went. <laughs> Seven years ago. The Hub visit was recorded by Reagan staffers and released ten years after Reagan left office. I watched that video. I got to see a snapshot of pure unscripted Ronald Reagan. It showed how powerfully and eloquently the man was able to engage any audience, large or small, just by being himself. As we work through the process of selecting our next president, we sure could use another leader like him. In any event, as I celebrate St. Patrick's Day this year, I'll offer up my own toast to the great communicator. To follow you, we were content and grateful for the way we went. And that's a great piece. Uh, we got Charlie, uh, who helped us with that, and thank you, Tom Purcell, for recording that. And it's just so great to hear one of our great public speakers, and one of our great presidents just going out to a place where everybody goes and talking like we all talk. And my goodness, that <laughs> the Irish built the prisons and then they and then we filled them. Uh, yeah, he's right about ethnic jokes. You can't tell them anymore, folks. That could end, you in, end up being, putting you in jail, too. And uh, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And uh, I think we all have a St. Patrick's Day story, and I have one, too, because my best friend got carted away uh, in, a, in a melee in New York City. Well, because when my Irish friends drink, well, they like to just get and mix it up and get into some arguments. And there was a little bit of a scuffle, and the next thing you know, he was carted away at 16 years old and not taken to jail, just just taken away because he needed to be removed <laughs> and it was a humbling moment for him and uh well a funny moment for all of us because we heckle him to this day about maybe just having one pint less on the big day and uh that's a tall order for an irishman on saint patty's day to have a pint less a guinness or whatever it is uh that you prefer on the great day of saint patrick's day uh, to all of you wearing green, to all of you who refuse to wear green, shame on you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Some people call me the space cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. Some people call me Maurice. <laughs> The pompatists of love People talk about me, baby Say I'm doing you wrong, doing you wrong Well, don't you worry, baby, don't worry Cause I'm right here, right here, right here, right here at home Cause I'm a picker I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as often as possible, we like to have Jesse 
do his version of the news. And today's subject and through line is cats. Pop singer Miley Cyrus is nursing her wounds after she was injured by a vicious cat. Miley shared a photo of her forehead injuries with fans on Instagram, adding a caption of expletives. Cyrus shared two other pictures, including a close-up image of her bloodied scalp and a picture of a deep, long laceration on her tattooed forearm. The former Hannah Montana actor has been an animal advocate for many years, and she recently backed a campaign to end the hunting of lions in South Africa. Got rats? Hundreds of cats are being hired and put to work in local homes and businesses in Chicago. There's a waiting list for the cats, and a lot of the people that are on that list live near the soon-to-be-demolished buildings like the Children's Memorial Hospital in Lincoln Park. When the building comes down, the rat problem is expected to get worse. The street cats were scheduled to be euthanized, but then rescued from animal shelters and sent into places like businesses, factories, and homes to kill the rats. All right, meow, where were we? I'm sorry, are you saying meow? Am I saying meow? A woman in California has transformed her 4,000-square-foot home into what's believed to be the largest no-cage cat sanctuary and adoption center in the United States. If I didn't have to deal with all the humans and, and the drama in life, I would be just perfectly content just taking care of cats. An estimated 24,000 cats have been saved by the sanctuary, which houses up to 1,000 cats at any given time. 67-year-old Laine Latanzio set up the cat house in 1992 after finding out that many nearby shelters euthanized the cats who aren't adopted. It just kept growing. Uh, I figured as long as I could take care of them and I had room, then I was doing a good thing. As more and more feral and abandoned cats took up residence in her home, she moved out of the main house and into a trailer on her 12-acre property. Ladanzio spent her entire retirement fund on the pet project, which also relies on donations. I thought you... Don't think, boy, man. Do you know how fast you were going? She meow has a staff and a team of volunteers to help keep the house clean and the about 800 cats and 300 kittens fed. The sanctuary also employs veterinarians who keep the cats healthy and spayed or neutered. The cats eat about 1,000 cans of cat food every week. Oh, my goodness. For our American... Ow! I'm Jesse Edwards. Now, what is so damn funny? Oh. I could have you said meow. <laughs> Great job on that, Jesse. Great job on that. And we hit every kind of subject here in Our American Stories. Uh, we covered Justice Scalia's funeral. And we're going to cover Merle Haggard. And right now, we want to hit cuddling. Because, well, we read a story in the Wall Street Journal, Need a Cuddle? Hire a Pro. And so we would track down a cuddler because we wanted to know what is this business. And, well, where do you start? And... Kira Cuddles joins us now. Kira, thanks for joining us. Kira, uh, tell hello? Me, hello, Kira. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Hi. Hey, tell us this, Kira. You're you're, you're a professional cuddler. Um, tell me what that tell me what that entails. Like you, you know, this has been a fascination for us for a couple of months since we read the article and. What led you to that, and what are your customers like? Talk a little bit about this this space called the cuddling industry or the nascent cuddling industry. Talk about that. So um, what led me to it was that I had 
a lot of friends who messaged me and told me that I should apply for this amazing job as a cuddler because within my community of people, I already was very affectionate. And so um, uh, I applied to the job, and I contacted Sam, the woman who created it, about a year before it all actually came to fruition. And me and her played tag on Facebook for a long time. And then um, she interviewed, or she had over 900 applications. And then it went down to five people. And she had to decide on two people. And so um, at that, by then, I was going to get a master's in nutrition, and I didn't think that I was going to be able to devote my time and energy to it and thought, oh, no, should um, should I bail? And I thought, no, it'll all work out. Well, it and did. So it then, did. Yeah, and then it worked out, and she chose three of us instead, and hourly-wise, it all worked out. That's fantastic. And the, and the clientele that we get is... Um, are people who are depressed, um, autistic, cerebral palsy, um, have been physically abused in the past, or have a partner who hit menopause and doesn't want to be touched anymore, mm-hmm. or you name it. There's a wide array of people that come to us for different reasons, and they come and we just hold space for them and we present them with non-judgment and really allow them to feel safe and secure, kind of like when you're a kid and you want to be an astronaut and no adult around you says, no, you can't be an astronaut. Everybody says, yeah, you can be an astronaut. You can be whatever you want. And that's what we're there for is we just let people be whoever they are. And don't tell them that they should be or shouldn't be something or someone, and just let them process through what they're doing, what they're dealing with. And so, a lot of it is talk therapy as well, because the moment you are um, in somebody's arms, the oxytocin starts flowing, and so you become comfortable with them. And so, it's I mean, it's touch therapy, and so um, we get, I guess. People, I would say people would open up to us differently than they would just a typical psychiatrist or yeah. therapist, yeah, you know, I, because I think that, that makes oxytocin sense. is flowing. That makes sense. Tell me yeah. this, uh, you know, first two quick questions and you know, try We got about three minutes left together. Uh, do you have more male customers or female customers and the cuddlers themselves? Are there more male cuddlers? That is the people who are hired or female cuddlers. Talk about both sides. If you could, we have more male um, clients. Um, we do have, uh, I don't know, maybe 20% female clients. And then for the cuddlers that we currently have on, we have three females and, or, yeah, four, four females and one male. Right. And tell, and, and so it, it, I would assume this is just, this has a lot to do with either loneliness or just some, some contact. And you know, I have some friends in equine therapy and it's very much the same thing. People just want to, Get on the horse, ride the horse, play with the horse, and I, something to me sounds like this is a, a little akin to that in terms of uh, this is a place where someone can just share basic feelings. Is that is that is that what's going on here, Kira? Absolutely. I mean, what it comes down to is we all want to feel loved, and so 
um, these people have come to acknowledge that they are missing that in their life some way or another, and so they come to us just to feel loved and accepted in life. Well, that's great. And that's what we hold place for them. Tell us this, your best story, you got about a minute, your best story is a professional cuddler. Let's hear it. Ooh. Um... So let's see. Um, two. One, I walked into a place and this guy had just found out that he had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And before we even went into the room, he said, you are my hero. Thank you so much. And the other one was I had a young woman who was um, a stripper and had and was in that mode of life because she had had a lot of... Um, family disruptions in the beginning and um and by the time she left she said she could see how she was perfect and that everyone else was and that it was all going to be okay well kira this is what i'd love to do when i'm out in your neck of the woods i want to come over and i want to be cuddled a and b i want to cuddle i want to see what this looks like (laughs) and and you know my guys here are, are, are sort of laughing but I'm I'm serious. I'm going to come over because I'm act. I think you're actually onto something. And when you said the word love the way you did, and I I can tell you this, I see a lot of loneliness in the world, Kira, right now. I don't think Facebook brings people closer together. I think it brings them further apart, so on and so forth. So uh, what I'd love yeah. to do is take you on. Uh, let's stay in touch. When I'm in your neck of the woods, um, I say uh, a I want to be a customer, and then b I want to see what it's like to actually be on the other side taking care of somebody, one or two people. I'm not sure I can cuddle a guy, though, Kira, and I'm not. I'm just not sure about that, um, but I'm going to try. Maybe I have to try. Well, you're and- welcome anytime, and we have over 50 different poses to sh- introduce you to. Do, so. I have, do I have to practice up? Do I have to study? Is there anything I need to know, Kira? Like, uh, do I have to do some yoga <laughs> first, or do I just come in and just yeah. give it a wing? No, we accept everybody exactly where they are. Oh, I love that. Kira Kettles, thank you so much for joining us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we try to cover it all. And we saw this story in the Wall Street Journal. And we were just curious. And when we come back, a little bit more serious side. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Once upon a time, a song had melody and rhyme, and lovely ballads used to fill the air. The songs were sweet and lyrical, and sang about the miracle of love and bloom and love beyond despair. But gone are the June songs, the high-high, the moon songs, and baritones who used to sing romantic are singing songs more frantic than romantic. A one, a two, a three, a clock, a four, a clock, a rock. You gotta sing rock or else you go in hot. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, roll, throw away. 
sense if and your self-control But brother, I've got news Mr. Cole won't rock and roll And no, he won't That's not King Cole And you're hearing him at his heyday He was singing there in the live from the Sands Casino in Las Vegas record from 1960. This was during the heyday of Sinatra and the Rat Pack, and it's Cole's elegant voice, rather than his brilliant piano playing, that was the focus at this stage of his career. As a pop singer, Cole had the audience in the palm of his hand like almost no other entertainer of his era, save perhaps for the chairman of the board himself. If he doesn't call his girl. And we're talking about and celebrating the music of Nat King Cole. And he was born this music legend on this day in history in 1919. Now when Tin Pan Alley serenades a beauty. Do they sing of Rosemary, our sweet Lorraine? No, they dedicate a hymn. To Tutti Fruity. <laughs> Who's as tender as a dame from Mickey's Plain? Born in Montgomery, Alabama, Nat King Cole had three brothers and one sister. When Nat was four years old, he and his family moved to Chicago, where his father, Edward, became a Baptist minister. Nat learned to play the organ from his mother, the church organist. He began formal lessons at 12 and eventually learned not only jazz and gospel music, but also Western classical music. He performed from Bach to Rachmaninoff. Cole began his performing career in the mid-1930s while still a teenager, adopting the name Nat Cole. He left Chicago in 1936 to lead a band, Shuffle Along. His older brother, Eddie, a bass player, soon joined Cole's band, and they made their first recording in 1936. When it suddenly failed in Long Beach, California, Cole decided to remain there. He later returned to Chicago in triumph to play such venues as the Edgewater Beach Hotel. Cole's first mainstream vocal hit was the 1943 recording of one of his compositions, Straighten Up and Fly Right, based on a black folktale that his father had used as a theme for a sermon. Johnny Mercer invited him to record it for his fledgling Capitol Records. It sold over 500,000 copies, proving that folk-based material could appeal to a wide audience. Took a monkey for a ride in the air The monkey thought that everything was on the square The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back But the monkey grabbed his neck and said Now listen, Jack Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top Ain't no use in diving What's the use of jiving? Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. The buzzer told them. In 1946, the Cole Trio paid to have their own 15 minute radio program on the air, and it was called King Cole Trio Time. It was the first radio program sponsored by a black performing artist. 
Beginning in the late 1940s, Cole began recording and performing pop-oriented material for mainstream audiences, in which a string orchestra often accompanied him. His stature as a pop star was cemented during this period of hits such as Christmas Song, Nature Boy, Mona Lisa, Too Young, and his signature song, this one, Unforgettable. That's what you are Unforgettable Though near or far Like a song of love that clings to me How the thought of you does things to me Never before has someone been more unforgettable. Nat King Cole was a black man, and to appreciate what that meant and what his career meant, you have to imagine a time when American music, like American schools and neighborhoods, were segregated. Record sales were measured on three separate charts in Billboard magazine. Pop music was white. Hillbilly music was country, and R&B, or race music as it was called back then, that was black. The thing about Cole was that he was absolutely a black man, says historian Roger Wilkins, who grew up black in the 1940s. He conked his hair, he processed it, he smoothed it out all shiny. Some of us, I included, a view that guys who conked their hair were just escapists. With Nat Cole, you'd say, well, that's okay. He does it because it's part of the thing that he's selling. And Nat King Cole crossed over. He crossed over as a handsome debonair man who exuded sex appeal, and that was something new. Black people were expected to sing comedy songs and minstrel-type songs or blues or songs about work, said a music historian. But it was very, very unprecedented for a black man to come out and sing Cole Porter or sing George Gershwin or the great theatrical songs. He had this great sort of romantic aura about him, which was not what black performers of either gender were encouraged to do back then. And that's the thing about Nat King Cole. He did it his way. And let's hear another one of those great hits of Cole's. Let's take a listen to Mona Lisa. men have named you You're so like the lady with the mystic smile Is it only cause you're lonely they have blamed you For that Mona Lisa strangeness in your smile Do you smile to tempt a lover, Mona Lisa? Or is this your way 
to hide a broken heart Many dreams have been brought to your doorstep They just lie there And they die there This is Our American Stories, more on the life of Nat King Cole after these messages. Are just a cold and lonely, lovely work of art. That's the best Get your kicks On Route 66 This is Our American Story And we continue Our celebration of Nat King Cole And we love talking about music and arts And he was born, this music legend On this day in history In 1919 And we love celebrating Beautiful things And my goodness Nat King Cole singing and piano playing is simply beautiful. By the way, Cole was successful. Will Friedwald, a great music historian, said that in the years between Bing Crosby and Elvis Presley, Cole was the most successful American singer of the time. Quote, he is without a doubt the single biggest record seller of his generation, Friedwald said. The only one that comes close is a generation later, Elvis. I mean, Nat Cole just has hit single after hit single, and nobody could come near him, even Sinatra. And it's true. So through the 1950s, Cole continued to rack up successive hits, selling in the millions throughout the world, including Smile, A Blossom Fell, and this song, Pretend. Pretend you're happy when you're blue It isn't very hard to do And you'll find happiness without an end Whenever you pretend Remember anyone can dream Nothing's bad as it may seem The little things you haven't got Could be a lot If you'd pretend You'll find a love you can share One you can call all your own 
Just close your eyes, she'll be there You'll never be alone And if you sing this melody You'll be pretending Nat King Cole also broke the TV color barrier. On November 5, 1956, the Nat King Cole Show debuted on NBC. The variety program was one of the first hosted by an African-American. Beginning as a 15-minute pop show on Monday night, the program was expanded to a half hour in July of 1957. Despite the efforts of NBC, as well as many of Cole's industry colleagues, Ella Fitzgerald, Harry Belafonte, Mel Torme, Peggy Lee, Eartha Kitt, Tony Bennett, All of them appeared on the show, and by the way, Americans were watching the show. But there was a problem. No sponsor would step up and advertise on the show. They were afraid of boycotts. As the great Nat King Cole told reporters, Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark. And that's just got to be one tough thing to live past and through, that a country that loves you also wants to punish you just for the color of your skin. By the way, he loved playing with great white singers. There was no race. Let's take a listen to a duet with a younger Frank Sinatra sitting down with the Cole Trio, Nat King Cole tickling the ivories. Let's take a listen. Say, Nat, I know that every chance you get, you give a break to a promising young vocalist. Of course, I'm not so young and not so promising, but couldn't I sing one with you, Nat? Huh, please, hey? Folks, Nat is thinking it over. He's looking down at the keyboard. I'm in. I get to sing with the famous King Cole Trio. I know why I've waited. Know why I've been blue. I prayed each night for someone exactly like you. Now, why should we spend money? On a show or two That's it, I get some free tickets No one does the love scenes How? Exactly like you You make me feel so grand I want to hand the world to you You seem to understand Each foolish little scheme I'm scheming Dream I'm dreaming Now I know why my mama She taught me to be true Now she met me for someone Exactly like you And let's take a listen to the great Nat King Cole singing with another masterful singer of her era the great late Ella Fitzgerald Not her smile, but such a lovely smile that it's 
Incandescent quality to it. Music historian Will Friedwell once wrote, It's like some kind of magic spell is being cast. Here's what singer Aaron Neville had to say about Nat King Cole He just hypnotized me. It was like medicine to me. If I had got a spanking or something that day, Nat would smooth it all out. I think Nat was everybody's favorite singer, Neville continued. Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Marvin Gaye, all of them told me he was their favorite. Everybody wanted to do some Nat King Cole. Frank Sinatra said when he went home, he played Nat King Cole records to relax. In September 1964, Cole began losing weight and experiencing back pain. Cole collapsed with pain after performing at the Sands in Las Vegas, and he was finally persuaded by friends to seek medical help. A malignant tumor on his left lung in an advanced state of growth was observed on a chest x-ray. Cole, who had been a heavy smoker, had lung cancer and it was expected that he had only months to live. He carried on working against his doctor's wishes and made his final recordings in December of 1964 in San Francisco with an orchestra conducted by Ralph Carmichael released on the album L.O.V.E. shortly before his death. It peaked at number four on the Billboard album charts in the spring of 1965. Let's take a listen. L. It's for the way you look at me Oh, it's for the only one I see V is very, very extraordinary E is even more than anyone that you adore Can love is all that I can give to you Love is more than just a game for two Two in love can make it Take my heart and please don't break it Love was made for me and you This is Our American Stories, the life of Nat King Cole Celebrated here, nothing more beautiful, nothing more elegant Let's take a listen as we close out the hour, Nat King Cole, an American classic, born on this day in history in 1919. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn and study all of the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. V is very, very 
extraordinary is even more than anyone that you adore can love is all that I can give to you love is more than just a game for two two and love can make it take my heart and please don't break it love was made for me and Love was made for me and you Love was made for me and you And this is Our American Stories. We recently celebrated the life of Nancy Reagan and the marriage of Nancy and Ronald Reagan upon her passing. And you can listen to the full hours we've done, and we did too, at ouramericannetwork.org. Today we bring you a story of her husband for our This Day in History segment that's brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about the Constitution, our nation's history, the arts, literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you through their hugely popular and free online courses at hillsdale.edu, and it features some of the best professors in this country, the kind I didn't have in college, frankly, and I didn't even have in some of the best law schools I'd been to in the country. I attended one of the best. And on this day in history, well, it's St. Patrick's Day, named after the Irish saint, a day that President Ronald Reagan, like many Americans, celebrated heartily. In our local paper, the Oxford Eagle, we bumped into a story about President Reagan's celebration. It was from nationally syndicated columnist Tom Purcell, who graciously recorded it for us. Here's Tom. on St. Patrick's Day, 1988, when President Reagan arrived at Pat Troy's Irish Pub in Alexandria, Virginia. As news got around town, the pub quickly filled the capacity. While Reagan enjoyed a pint of harp and some corned beef and cabbage, Pat Troy was so busy tending to his patrons, he didn't have time to react to his famous customer. He had an energy about him, Troy told me. It made it easy to carry on as though he were just another patron, so that's what I did. Troy took to the stage and led the audience in the wild road. He directed different sections of the audience to compete with each other. You have to clap louder, Mr. President, he shouted, causing the president to laugh out loud. Troy next led the audience in the unicorn song. While he sang the words, the audience mimicked the animals referenced in the song. There were green alligators and long-necked geese, some humpback camels and some chimpanzees, some cats and rats and elephants, but as sure as you're born, the loveliest of all was the unicorn. Ray 
Hagen turned to watch a group of young women act out the song. His face showed curiosity and delight, as though he'd never seen this song performed before. But that's how he was. At the same time he was the world's most powerful leader, he was a man of youthful innocence who found immense pleasure in the simplest things. Troy then handed the microphone to the president. The raucous crowd became silent. Reagan spoke off the cuff. First of all, a very great thank you to Pat Troy, the owner of this particular place. <laughs> then he talked about his father, an Irishman. My father told me when I was that high that the Irish built the jails in this country and then filled them. <laughs> but I just want you to know, I'm, at, you know, I'm very leery about ethnic jokes now in my position. <laughs> Reagan yeah, <laughs> then talked about a visit to Castle Rock where St. Patrick had erected the very first cross in Ireland. And the young Irish guide who was showing me around took me through the cemetery and he stopped me by one very ancient, large tombstone there. The inscription on the tombstone read, Remember me as you pass by, for as you are, so once was I, and as I am, you too will be. So be content to follow me. And that was too much for some Irishmen of more recent vintage who, who, had, who had scratched underneath. To follow you, I am content. I wish I knew which way you went. Why didn't I find this place seven years ago? The pub visit was recorded by Reagan staffers and released 10 years after Reagan left office. I watched that video. I got to see a snapshot of pure unscripted Ronald Reagan. It showed how powerfully and eloquently the man was able to engage any audience, large or small, just by being himself. As we work through the process of selecting our next president, we sure could use another leader like him. In any event, as I celebrate St. Patrick's Day this year, I'll offer up my own toast to the great communicator. To follow you, we were content and grateful for the way we went. And that's a great piece. Uh, we got Charlie, uh, who helped us with that, and thank you, Tom Purcell, for recording that. And it's just so great to hear one of our great public speakers and one of our great presidents just going out to a place where everybody goes and talking like we all talk and my goodness that <laughs> the irish built the prisons and then they and then we filled them uh yeah he's right about ethnic jokes you can't tell them anymore folks that could end, you, end up being, putting you in jail too and uh, this is lee habib this is our american stories and uh, i think we all have a saint patrick's day story and i have one too because my best friend got carted away uh in a in a melee in new york city well because when my irish friends drink well they like to just get and mix it up and get into some arguments and there was a little bit of a scuffle and the next thing you know he was carted away at 16 years old and not taken to jail just just taken away <laughs> because he needed to be removed <laughs> and it was a humbling moment for him and uh well a funny moment for all of us because we heckle him to this day about maybe just having one pint less on the big day and uh that's a tall order for an irishman on saint patty's day to have a pint less a guinness or whatever it is uh that you prefer on the great day of saint patrick's day uh, to all of you wearing green, to all of you who refuse to wear green, shame on you. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Some people call me the space cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. Some people call me Maurice. Because I speak of the pompous of love. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to that lonesome, aching, but ultimately hopeful voice of the great Sam Cooke, who was writing about a time and a place, but also, is there ever a time this song doesn't move us? And he wrote this. And for the hour, we're talking about Reverend Martin Luther King, and joining us for this hour as we examine the leadership dimension of King's life. We're going to be attacking his spiritual dimension with some speeches you have never heard before in the following hour. And that's Pat Williams, who's joining us, as always, when we talk about leadership. He's the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic and the author of over 80 books, 80 books on leadership, something obviously he takes seriously, including the book 21 Great Leaders, Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Influence. You know, I wanted to read a quote from Martin Luther King and get your, your, uh, your answer, Pat, and then tie maybe it in back to the Hitler conversation we just dropped off with. He said, quote, Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. I would rather be a man of conviction than a man of conformity. Talk about that, Pat. Well, he uh, <clears throat> had a quality that allowed him to do that. And the quality uh, is called courage. Uh, he was uh, elected, really, and appointed uh, to lead the whole civil rights movement as a very young man. And uh, as a result, as you study uh, many of those marches, uh, there was Dr. King out front leading them, facing the snarling police dogs and the billy clubs and the fire hoses that would rip bark off of a tree from a hundred feet away, uh, and and always was the threat of of being shot. Uh, those were violent times in American history. We uh, this this generation, the youngsters today, have no 
no awareness that blacks and whites uh, didn't mingle. Two separate worlds. Yep. And, and uh, it was violent. And Dr. King didn't shy. Listen, he, uh, he had his share of attacks. And he knew, he knew that uh, being as open as that, you know, he didn't hide. He didn't have security. I mean, he could have been shot any time. He knew that. Yep. But, but courage is what I, I think of when I think of him and, uh, and all of those civil rights leaders. Uh, they had enormous courage to do what they did. No doubt. And, you know, Pat, it wasn't just the South. I mean, look, I'm a product of the North. And if you've ever seen the great movie A Bronx Tale, which is Robert De Niro and Chaz Palminteri, this was true of so many northern cities. There was this line in the city where there were whites, and on the other side there were blacks. And in that particular movie, it's the Bronx, and there's the white Italian neighborhood, there's the black neighborhood. Step on side the other, either race, and a world of hurting was coming your way. This was an American problem, Pat. I think everybody tries to say it was a Southern problem. Uh, Lee, there was there was uh, violence in Los Angeles and Chicago, Detroit, uh, Newark, Philadelphia, New York. Absolutely, we tend to think that uh, the South is where all the problems were, and they were enormous. But uh, it was a it was a national problem. Two different worlds: uh, the black world and the white world. And uh, Dr. King led the the push for equality. Uh, he made that incredible statement that he longed for the day when his children, his four little children, would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And we have made an enormous amount of progress, Lee. There's still a long way to go. But uh, I think Dr. King would be pleased with much of the progress we've made. No, I, I couldn't agree more, Pat. I want to play you this clip uh, that we have from his I Have a Dream speech and talk about the lesson you took away from it in your book. Let's hear it. How long, not long. Yes, sir. Because no lie can live forever. Yes, sir. How long, not long. How long? Yes, because you shall reap what you sow. Yes, sir. How long, How not long. long. How long? I'm sorry, I mischaracterized that. That was from the how long, how long speech, Pat. Um, but what a, what a remarkable thing to say. No lie can live forever. Uh, talk about that, if you could. Well, that, that, that's his ability to, to, to convey that message. Uh, I do want to go back, Lee, to the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, he had worked hard on his talk. Uh, in fact, the night before at the Willard Hotel in Washington, he was polishing up his speech, and he was the last speaker of the day. Uh, That day was coming to a close, and it had been a long day. People were really tired and hot and uh, hungry, and uh, Dr. King got up to speak, and he was going off his written speech. Mahalia Jackson, who was up there on the stage behind him, realized that Dr. King was not really connecting with that audience she'd heard him speak elsewhere and uh she was not real thrilled with this prepared speech and so she she gave him a little shot from behind and said martin tell him about the dream and you can see on on tape on on film lee uh that dr king basically put his notes away 
and and went into his uh, stump speech. And uh, boy, it took off. Uh, he he got down and did what he'd been doing all over the country, and uh, and that was just speaking from his heart. And he knew exactly what to do. And boy, and, and from that point, uh, that crowd was just electrified. And that's that's what when we go and see video or tape, you know, that's what we see. He he got into his wheelhouse. He got into his hot spot and. Uh, and just blew the roof off. He was something. And then ended up in the White House. And uh, uh, John F. Kennedy uh, was very impressed. He uh, complimented Dr. King and then said to his group, you know, well, he's damn good. <laughs> That's what he said. Yep, yep. They were, they were, they were all very and, – and Kennedy, by the way, was super relieved that there had been no violence. That was the concern. Yep. You know, as this crowd gathered in Washington, a quarter of a million people, uh, they were worried about violence. And and uh, so when it ended peacefully and in, in, in a positive way, uh, Kennedy and his staff were very relieved. And, you know, Kennedy knew something about the power of metaphor and what a communicator he was as well, Pat. So this was no this was oh, some boy, high I, compliment coming from JFK. Yeah, the two of Listen, I love to this day, I love to. Uh, look at John F. Kennedy communicating, particularly his inaugural address, which may be the most memorable in uh, American history. And uh, we'll never forget him as a communicator. No, it, it, it's amazing what what a great leader can do through the skill of his oratory. Uh, Winston Churchill, in fact, years years ago said, of all the talent bestowed upon man... Uh, there is nothing more powerful than the gift of oratory. Uh, that was that was Churchill's view, and of course he had that gift. He worked very hard on his verbal skills, and without them, you know, uh, we probably wouldn't uh, remember Winston Churchill as we do. No, there's there's no doubt. And and Pat, we're, I wanted to connect back to that improvisation uh, with the "I Have a Dream" speech. You know, I have a I have a dear friend and a pastor who has told me in the last five or six years that he has let the Spirit of God move him more in his sermons. And he calls it preaching on his feet. And he said that, you know, it's more about God than it is about me, and I need to have more space for him. And uh, just briefly here, Pat, we're going, we're going into a break, just about 30 seconds on that. And then the other side, we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Well, I think your pastor friend uh, is right on. Uh, to let God work through you, uh, you're, you're his voice here on earth. And when a pastor or, or anyone, you know, really understands that, any communicator, uh, let God work through you, and uh, he'll help you. He'll give you strength. And, and, and King, Dr. King did that. Uh, he, was a, he was a godly man, and uh, the Lord spoke through him. Indeed. We're, we're talking to Pat Williams, as we always do on Leadership on the day, well, Martin Luther King Day, which is an important day in this country and one of the great men of this country. And when we come back, more with Pat Williams. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. As we say so often, no arguing on this network, no political opinion, just stories. And this may be one of the greatest in our country, Martin Luther King's, and that's Reverend Martin Luther King. We're not calling him Dr. Not at any time during these two hours. I am t- 
This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there, and why, and the intersection of commerce, too, because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new, and sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals, and we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words. The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles. And the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. And by the way, the headline of that article was, Nice Trash Can, Let's See What the Bears Think. And, well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, God's country, if ever there is, in this great country, among them running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And, Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first, your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy. Sure. I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited and fell in love with the place and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho, but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from, from the uh, Montana border. Yep. And, and, yes, uh, I do have a dream job um, and, and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years. You know, what people don't know and so often forget in this great country is you get out of Philadelphia and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania, and the Poconos know it's not Yellowstone, but, my goodness, hunting, fishing, and plenty of bears, right? Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears. And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they? Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive. Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This is exactly. pretty simple. And uh, so your, your, your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your, their life and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy. Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not, no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero uh, here in West Yellowstone, Montana this morning, so still trying to warm up. Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you? Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida. Now, tell me this, as, you, as you're, you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume. Yes, very much so. I, I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here. And tell folks about, about Yellowstone and, and the folks uh, who are listening who've never been, uh, what they're missing uh, what they should come and see, and when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the, or the, or the traffic or the population that swells? Talk a bit about Yellowstone. Yeah, well, Yellowstone is very, very big. It's 2.2 million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April, uh, right to around the 1st of November, and that's because of the depth of snow that we get. But... Um, to me, the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June. Um, after that, you know, with the kids getting out of school, it does get 
uh, very crowded, and it seems to take away the, you know, the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people. But uh, I've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen 10 bears in, in one day. You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, the park can, you know, elevation-wise can go very, very high, um, and, and so it can snow at any time of the year. Uh, snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August, um, so pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach, and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime you have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground. You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone, and it, and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact. Uh, but talk about, you know, the, 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 the nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what are things you do to either prevent it? Can you, can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time? And then, B, when you see one, what do you do? What do you actually do? Sure, sure. So, so there's an estimated uh, population of 700 grizzlies in Yellowstone Park and an average of one bear attack uh, per year where there's uh, around 4 million visitors. So the chance of getting attacked is, is, is pretty slim, uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen, there's, there's a couple things that you need to do. Is, is, um, uh, before you, uh, you're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, uh, make some noise. You're walking with a group of people, perhaps. You hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly. And so you're going to talk in a low-com voice, kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to, to obviously walk away, um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible, that bear is charging at you. That bear can run 35 miles an hour. That's 42 feet per second. So you have to be ready. And, and yes, that bear is going to be very close, 10, 15 feet away, 20 feet away when you start to discharge that can. Um, and with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to 18 miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray. And, and it basically renders them useless for a couple hours. They, um, uh, you know, their their eyes are watering, they're they're tearing, they're coughing, and uh, and then of course you're going the opposite way. But fortunately, not too many encounters. But yes, you need to be prepared. You need to look for fresh bear scat, fresh bear sign, and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking. Yeah, and that's so that is pretty extraordinary. Four million visitors, seven hundred grizzlies, and only one bear attack per year. But there there are probably multiple sightings. I would assume. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's it, it's a um, a, a, a personal, you know, uh, 
distance that you need to stay away from those bears, and whether it be a bison, 1,500-pound bison, have a, a personal space, just like a grizzly bear, just like a moose. And so if you get into that bear's personal space, then you're threatening that bear, and, and, and perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them, even, even though you know, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and so, again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears. And, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand, you want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer, and before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close, and then she charges. Yeah, and by the way, don't get cl- too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, and he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves. And it's running the bear safety product testing over at the Grizzly Wolf and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. This is Our American Stories. between two and 500 pounds. Brown bears weigh between 300 and over 1,000 pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And each day we spend some time on our This Day in History segment. Sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's ten, sometimes it's thirty, sometimes it's an hour. Hey, every once in a while, it's two hours. That's what Walt Disney demanded. We couldn't condense his story into an hour. It was too, well, just ridiculous. It was too absurd. And unless you spent two hours, you couldn't bring it all together because people would have thought we were lying all he did in his life. And today we're spending the hour on Alexander Hamilton. And all of this is brought to you by our great partners and our sponsor at Hillsdale College, one of the finest colleges in this country and the only one that I think digs in in the classical liberal arts tradition from the Western canon, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, straight through the Bible, all the way to the founders, everything in between, literature, art, philosophy, and political, political theory as well but that's last not least and you can go to hillsdale.edu and you can see all of their great online content because you don't have to send a child to hillsdale though i'd i would advise it if you would because it is a remarkable place to send your child they will come out better for it and be well-prepared adults but hillsdale can come to you through their remarkable online courses and i've been talking earlier about the remarkable play in New York City, the musical Hamilton. And we wanted to play a little bit of music from it. And here is Guns and Ships. How 
does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire? Leave the battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher? Yo, turns out we have a secret weapon, an immigrant. You know and love who's unafraid to step in. He's constantly confusing, confounding the British henchmen. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman! I'm taking this horse, smell of rains, making red coats, weather with blood stains. And I'm never gonna stop until I make him jump up and I'm up and scatter the remains down. Watch me engage in them, escaping them, and raging them out. Papaya. I go to France for more fun. Papaya. I come back with more guns and ships, and so their balance shifts. We rendezvous with Rochambeau, consolidate their gifts. We can end this war in Yorktown, cut them off at sea, but for this to succeed, there's someone else we need. I know. Those are the words of Lynn Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton. He wrote the plot, music, lyrics, and even performs in it. I mean, it is stunning. And it makes you rethink rap. Whatever you might have thought about it, what was scat? Remember in the day when jazz scat artists were some of the most remarkable musicians? And I think he actually is trying to even save an art form itself. His rap didn't have to go the way it did with sort of, sort of ghetto vulgarities. Didn't need to go that way. Oh, Alexander Hamilton I have soldiers that will yield for you If we manage to get this right They'll surrender my early life The world will never be the same Alexander Leah Labresca at 538.com That's Nate Silver's blog said this about the play. The use of rap helps Miranda pack more than 20,000 words into two and a half hours, roughly 144 words per minute. If Hamilton were sung at the pace of other Broadway shows I looked at, it would take anywhere between four and six hours. She found that the musical's fastest-paced verse from the song Guns and Ships clocked in at 6.3 words per second. So we wanted to dig into the archives here. And here's Ron Chernow, the author of Hamilton, talking about how he met Lin-Manuel Miranda. Let's take a listen. He told me that uh, Lin-Manuel had read my Hamilton book and uh, (laughs) made an enormous impression on him, and he wanted to to meet me. So I went to a matinee uh, in the Heights one Sunday, and he invited me backstage, and I said to him, so I gather my book made an impression on you. And he said, Ron, as I, w- I was reading it on vacation in Mexico, uh, and as I was reading it, hip-hop songs started rising off the page. So I said, really? <laughs> uh, this is not a typ- that wasn't what you were going for? This is not a, this is not a typical reaction to one of my uh, books. And he asked me on the spot to be the historical consultant. Uh, and so I said to him, you mean you want me to tell you when something is wrong? And he said, yes. He said, I want historians to take this seriously, which I think they, they are. Wow. So how did Miranda and Chernow work together? That launched what has uh, been an amazing six-year uh, process working with uh, him. 
And, you know, in the early period, we would have lunch and discuss Hamilton's psychology, mm-hmm. relationships. Uh, he would send me uh, via email every month one or two songs. I would just hear Lynn at the keyboard uh, playing it. And But then what happened, uh, once it started to go into various um, rehearsals and workshop productions, he would keep bringing me back in, and then I would, I would have the uh, opportunity uh, afterwards to sit down for an hour or two and really uh, give him my um, uh, comments. And the comments, uh, some of the comments were... Um, if I thought something was factually incorrect, although I have to say he's very well read uh, and he was um, almost always aware when he was departing from right, the, uh, right. the So even when he did depart from facts, it was just to merely advance a very condensed plot. You know, you're taking a man's whole life in a book that's hundreds and hundreds of pages and you're condensing it into two and a half hours of entertainment. So... Let's hear more about this really unusual partnership. I think that there probably are a lot of historians and biographers who would not be entirely comfortable doing this uh, because you have to have some flexibility uh, mm. in terms of the requirements of uh, a show. I mean, here, you know, we were going from an 800-page book to a two-and-a-half-hour yeah. uh, musical, and my involvement uh, with the show made me realize uh, History is long, messy, and complicated. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, if there's one thing that we all learn as historians is um, how difficult it is to generalize. The more you know, the more, uh, the more difficult yeah. it is to simplify some of this. Yeah, well. I've been telling in the Mount Vernon yeah. I've been there. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, a two-and-a-half-hour show yeah. Yeah. Um, has to be um, short and tight and, uh, you know, very... Um, uh, coherent. Short, tight, and coherent it is. Chernow then tells us about why Miranda sometimes needed to change stories about Hamilton, change him around to make the musical work. He would always have, I thought, a, a very plausible um, explanation of why he had changed something. I mean, I can just give you one, because uh, it comes right at the beginning of the show, um, that... Um, the show begins right at the start of the American Revolution, and he has uh, John Lawrence and uh, Lafayette in New York um, a year or two before he actually you know, meets them. So I said to him, Lynn, you know, you know he, <laughs> this is 1775, 1776, but they didn't you know, meet Hamilton until 1777. Uh, but he wanted to, um, one of Hamilton's first friends when he came to New York was a tailor named Hercules Mulligan. Yeah, yeah. I think Lynn found the name irresistible. Uh, <laughs> and Lynn wanted to start um, a series of quartets that run through the first act of Hamilton with his friends Mulligan. Lawrence and uh, uh, Lafayette, which means that with Lawrence and Lafayette, he has to introduce them, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit earlier than they mm-hmm. appear. So, um, uh, you know, there are moments where you have to scramble the time sequence yeah. a little bit. There are moments where you sort of have to collapse, you know, different mm-hmm. events. And so it goes. And here's a Broadway talent teaching an historian a little bit about his craft and his medium. And here, finally, is Ron Chernow on why folks are loving the musical Hamilton. Manuel has done something extraordinary. He's made American history hip and cool and erudite at the same 
time, and only he could have uh, done it. Because very, very often, that mentioning any specific examples, when people in a stage or screen uh, do the uh, founding era, yeah. they kind of dumb it down. They seem to start out with the uh, assumption that this is boring, dated stuff. No one's really interested in this stuff. So we better have a lot of action. We better have a lot of cannons, you know, booming and muskets, you know, firing. We better try to, you know, spice it up with some sex. Um, but there's an underlying assumption that the, the contemporary audience is going to find boring. Uh, Lynn, instead of finding the history constraining, he finds the history liberating. Mm. He finds it exciting. Mm-hmm. And the more deeply he gets into the history, that the more dramatic it's going to be. And I think the audience feels that. Mm. So this is like the um, uh, history class of a lifetime mm. uh, seeing this uh, this show. And uh, we've had kids as young as 10 11 come down to see the show and just absolutely uh, adore it. And at the same time, you know, highly, you know, literate. Uh, adults have, have seen it and took um, pleasure. They're kind of, you know, if you don't know anything about the period, you'll learn an enormous amount. If you do know a lot about the period. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Alexander Hamilton. And by the way, we believe this too here at our show that if you just tell the story, people will be interested in it. And we're going to continue telling these great stories from our past because they are lock solid and here in our present, alive and kicking. This is Our American Stories, and you can hear all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org, and it's all brought to you by Hillsdale College.